As we pray this morning, let me invite you to lift up our brothers and sisters, our friends in Florida. There are some moms and dads and some kids who need some prayers this morning. And let me invite you to, to just ask the Spirit to come and to speak to you this morning. And there's power in welcoming God to quiet our minds and our hearts and to whisper a word to us. Father, we give you thanks for all of the good gifts that you have given us. We give you thanks for life. We give you thanks for this world that you have created that we enjoy. And at times this world gets warped and twisted by sin and and we're bruised and pained because of it. And at times like that, we we turn to you for comfort and peace. We pray that you'd give that to us, to all who need it. Father, we pray that today our eyes would be lifted up to your Son, to the life that he provides, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what a life following your Son might look like, what it might promise for us, and that through the Spirit we might have the strength and the courage to follow after your Son. We invite your Spirit to come and to speak to us this morning as we open up the Scriptures. We pray that your Spirit that was at work in writing the Scriptures would now be at work in illuminating them to us, that we might hear from you, and be transformed in that experience. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. A couple weeks ago, I was talking with Michelle, and we were talking about what kind of parents we would be. Obviously awesome parents, but we were in particular wondering about that first moment of parenthood when your child gets sick for the first time, and gets really sick for the first time. I'm told that Um, You know, for your first kid, there's this moment that comes when there's a high fever that arrives, or there's like this real like bad-sounding crying, like pain-sounding crying, and you start to freak out. And I'm told that by like the third or fourth kid, it doesn't really phase you anymore. You're like, whatever. Doctors are expensive. This kid will be fine. Three is a lot anyways. Um, But that first one, I'm told there's this, this panic that happens, and we're like, well, I wonder, you know, if we could come to like kind of an estimate, if we could guess what we'd be like. And we're like, well, what? let's think about what happens when something happens to our, our pets. And Michelle just recently, her cat got ill and she had to, to, to deal with that. And, and, and I was thinking about what happened to my little puppy. Um, in December, River, my dog, swallowed something that he shouldn't have swallowed, which is kind of the story of his life. And I got home after work and he was having a hard time breathing. He was having a hard time keeping anything inside of his little stomach, and so I canceled my plans for the night and drove him to this vet that was open after hours, and I am really, really worried about River. Um, if you don't know, I got him when he was four weeks old. Um, I mean, he's really just like one of the most precious things to me. And we get to the vet, and the vet takes an x-ray, and then he comes out of the exam room and says, you need to get River in your car and take him to the vet ER uh, a little bit further down the street. We've called. They know you're coming. Um, 
He needs to go get checked out. We don't think, you know, whatever this foreign object is inside of him is going to be able to get out of him without surgery. And so we get in the car and we're driving over there and I am bawling. Like I'm calling Lindsay and I'm calling my mom and my mom's like, are you driving right now? Because you might, you might want to pull over. And I'm like, I don't know what they're going to do. I think they might have to like cut into my little baby. Like, I don't know if he's going to be okay. And so point of the story, I'm not going to, I'm not, it's not going to be good that first time. When that baby has a a fever, a panicked parent, a child in trouble, that is the context. That's the setting for the second sign that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John. If you will, turn with me to John chapter 4. In the Gospel of John, John gives us seven signs. Signs are, are John's word for miracles. Instead of saying miracle or works of power like the other Gospels would, John says sign. He, he thinks these miracles are pointing us to a deeper truth or are trying to illustrate something more substantial than just the brute fact of what happens in these, these miracles. The first 12 chapters of John are sometimes called the book of signs. And, and we're doing a sermon series where we're looking at each sign in turn. Last week, we looked at the first sign in the Gospel of John where Jesus turns water into wine. Today, we'll look at Sign number two. Now, John picks these seven signs on purpose. Jesus does a whole lot of miracles during his life. In fact, John tells us this in in chapter 20, verse 30, 31. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these seven, they're written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John tells us why he picks these seven signs and why he gives us these seven signs. And it's twofold, that you and I might have faith, that we might believe in Jesus. Literally, when John uses these formulations, he actually uses the the preposition into, that we might believe into Jesus, that we might really lean into who Jesus is with all of our existence, and that by doing that, we'll receive something. We'll receive life, the life that Jesus has come to offer. There's this link between believing in Jesus and receiving the life Jesus has come to give us. And we'll see that link played out in the story, the sign that we will look at this morning. John gives us these seven signs on purpose. There are lots of signs John could have given us. The other gospels tell lots more uh, stories about miracles. For instance, if you go to the gospel of Mark, it's almost like Mark takes a, like a dump truck and backs it up and then just unloads as many miracles as possible. Mark is just kind of trying to overwhelm you with all these things that Jesus accomplished. John is a little bit more artistic than that. He says, I'm going to just pick seven. And, and mainly there are seven that we don't get in other Gospels. He says, I'm going to give you these, and I want you to dig deep in these. And in these signs, come to know and believe in Jesus and then find life through that belief. Gregory the Great, uh, St. Gregory the Great, he was an early Christian pope, so the late 6th century, early 7th century. Um, He is one of the last popes that is well-received by almost all Christians uh, and across different confessions and denominations. So the Eastern Orthodox Church considers him a great saint of the faith. Roman Catholics, obviously, as he's a pope, um, revere him. Um, Even John Calvin, uh, the Protestant reformer, who was not known for his like of popes, once said this, Gregory the Great, he was the last great pope. Well, Gregory once said that Scripture is like a great 
smooth, deep river in which a lamb may walk, but an elephant may swim. Scripture's like a, a smooth, deep river in which a lamb may walk, but an elephant may swim. And I think this is true of John's gospel as it is true of any other passage or place in Scripture. And particularly the story we're going to read this morning, the second sign, is at face value a very short, very simple story. It's a story that a a, a four-year-old can understand, can appreciate, can get the gist of. At the same time, though, it's a story that has layers to it. It's a story that if you wanted to, you could explore from inside out, from different perspectives, that you could kind of attack from different angles, and you might find that what looks like a baby pool turns out to be a deep end. And so let's dig in together this morning. This, the second sign we'll read together in John chapter 4, picking up in verse 46. We read, So he, Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son may live will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, around one o'clock, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is going to be the last time that John marks the signs for us. So he's kind of held our hand as we've come along. He's gone, this is sign one, and this is sign two. After this, he's going to just expect us to kind of keep up and to know the kind of the project that he's undertaken. But he tells us here, this is the second sign. Now, if we look at the context here, John makes it very clear. We are back to square one. Some things have happened since the water into wine miracle, but we are now back full circle, and Jesus is back in Cana in Galilee. John wants us to connect what happened the first time in Cana to what happens now in Cana. He wants us to connect the wedding and this healing miracle. We might say on the very surface of things, the first observation we could make is that Jesus seems like the type of person who enjoys weddings, but dislikes funerals. Like at the very surface of things, if you read the Gospels, Jesus seems like the kind of guy who wants weddings to continue with more joy and wants to make sure a little boy's fever doesn't turn into a funeral. Or later on, wants to make sure a funeral stops and is reversed. The person who's dead comes to life again. This, I think, is very instructive to us about the kind of things that Jesus enjoyed, the kind of things that Jesus disliked, the kind of things Jesus thinks belong in God's creation, and the kind of things Jesus thinks does not belong in God's creation. You have the wedding. Now you have the funeral. We mentioned last week, if you're judging miracles based on um, what would happen if the miracle had not occurred, 
that the water into wine event is not maybe that important of a miracle. This one, the stakes are raised a little bit. Here you have a little boy who has a fever and is about to die. If, if a miracle doesn't come through for him, it seems like we're going to have a dead child on our hands. At the wedding, it just seemed like people would sober up, right? I mean, the stakes weren't quite as high. But both find importance to Jesus. This one, perhaps, though, is a little bit more serious. What happens is Jesus is returning from a tour of Judea and Samaria. If you were to read what happens between these two signs, these two miracles, Jesus goes to Jerusalem when he protests the temple system. He comes back and he interacts with some Gentiles. He meets the woman at the well in Samaria on his way back. And now he comes back full fold to Cana and Galilee. Capernaum is a city on the lake um, where this official is from. Um, on the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's sea level. Cana is in the hill country of Galilee, about 20, 25 miles away. So when the, the father says, come down with me to Capernaum, he really means, let's come down. We've got to climb down these hills together and go to the city. Capernaum is Jesus' home base for his ministry. He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. When Jesus, though, is ministering, he's traveling most of the time, but he comes back over and over again to Capernaum. We think he kind of stays there. That's kind of his home base that sends him out on mission. He comes, though, instead to Cana, and an official comes to find him. The word used here implies he was a royal official. We don't know much about this man, but we do know a little bit from this description. We know that he would have been an employee of King Herod, who was the quote-unquote king of the Jews of that time. This is not the same Herod that tried to kill Jesus as a baby. This is his grandson. He is kind of a puppet ruler of Galilee and Judea on behalf of the Roman Empire. He has some qualities, kind of like his father, that perhaps are not so great. This man was most likely a Jewish person living in Capernaum who takes up a job with the the royal office. Now, this means a couple of things. It means he would have been probably pretty wealthy, probably pretty influential, and most likely not very popular in Galilee. The guy working for King Herod, who himself is working to keep your people enslaved to an evil empire, is not typically going to be the most popular person around. When we read this story, we should read it as Jesus healing the son of someone who you might find unlikely to receive a healing, or you might find unlikely to even go look for Jesus in the first place. This royal official in our day, let me try to get it, is like Mitch McConnell. Or if that doesn't get you, like Chuck Schumer, if you're on the other side there, okay? Or, I mean, this is Paul Ryan. Or Nancy Pelosi. This is someone whom you might be disappointed with in their their decisions publicly for your community or your nation. This is someone you might feel has kind of betrayed you. This is someone who's just not a very popular person. This is not someone who comes to your mind as someone we'd put in a story to be an example to all of humanity for thousands and thousands of years. Yet it's this royal officer who apparently has heard about Jesus' powers, and his compassion, that he finds his son sick with a fever. And he hears that Jesus is in Cana, just a little bit away. And he says, I'm going to go. 
I'm going to go find him. And I'm going to go ask him if he will come heal my son. Feel the anxiety that this father has. Feel the like anticipated grief that kind of comes in situations like this. This is kind of a gamble the father's taking because he's leaving a, a child close to death and he might not be there when the child passes. He's kind of rolling the dice here. He's putting everything on the table that Jesus is going to come through for him. And he finds Jesus in Cana, and his son's at home. A little boy, we don't know how old, probably pretty little though, two years old, three years old. His breathing's shallow, his pulse is weak. The servants are around him, afraid that he's going to die at any moment. And the man comes up to Jesus, a man not used to begging, and he begins to plead for his son's life. And he asks Jesus to come down and heal his son because he's on the doorstep of death. And like Jesus does sometimes in situations like this, he responds in a weird way. Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The royal fish is like, what are, you, what are we talking about here? Did you hear my question? Jesus is um, doing, again, like we said, something he commonly does. If you remember with the first miracle in Cana, Jesus does this as well. Mary says, hey, look, they're running out of wine. And Jesus kind of gives this weird, almost rebuke-like response. Where he's like, woman, what does that have to do with me? That's their problem. They should have thought this through with the alcohol situation. But then Mary says, despite the rebuke, hey, get ready to do whatever he tells you to do. And here you see this again. The man gets this kind of weird, ambiguous rebuke. He maybe doesn't know exactly what's going on, but he doesn't let that stop him from expecting and preparing for the miracle, for the healing. What Jesus is referring here, it seems like, is to something that he's already started to encounter in his ministry that will be a theme throughout the book of John, which is a a suspicion of people who follow him only for his miracles. Jesus is very worried, it seems, in the Gospel of John, that some people would only have, let's call it like a signs faith, a miracle faith. That they'd only follow him or believe in him for what they could get from him, not for him himself. And there are some problems to this type of faith for, for Jesus. One of the big problems is it's missing the point. If you focus on the sign, you miss out on the reality that the sign is pointing to. And Jesus says, look, if, if you're here for the signs, there's this danger that you're going to get distracted and caught up in the sign itself. And you're going to become so obsessed with the sign that you're going to miss on what it was trying to get you to this whole time. Jesus is, is trying to say, I'm more than the miracles I perform. I, in a sense, Jesus is the miracle. Come down from heaven from God. As great as the healing is or as great as more wine is, even better is to receive Jesus as a gift from the Father. The, the other thing that's perhaps worrisome about sign faith, wonder faith, is that it's kind of like a sunshine type faith, right? It, it works when things are going well, but it starts to lose its ability to sustain when things don't go so well. 
So if you believe in Jesus in as much as he does things for you, then when your child is healed, you're good to go. But then later on, when your child receives another fever and perhaps Jesus isn't there or doesn't heal them, then all of a sudden, the ground of your faith starts to collapse around you. If we look closely, Jesus is actually using the plural here. So he's talking to the man, he says to him, but then he switches to the plural, unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's likely that Jesus is talking to a crowd that's formed around this, this man. And they're here to see the show. They want to see the magic trick. They want to see the party trick. They want to see the healing. And Jesus says, this is not, this is not why I'm doing this. If Jesus' mission was to come and just to heal as many people as possible, he did a bad job at it. There's tons of times in the Gospels, there's a crowd of people who all need help. We all need help. And Jesus instead withdraws and goes to pray by himself or moves on to the next city. You see, Jesus is not here to try to fix things one by one. He's here for a much bigger, broader, more cosmic purpose. And in all the Gospels, Jesus only thinks his miracles are important in as much as they point people to that much bigger work. So he heals somebody, but it's only really effective if you understand that that one healing is symbolic of a greater healing that Jesus has come to perform. This is also perhaps why Jesus performs his miracle here at long distance. Jesus phones it in for this one. And we might kind of not see the oddity of this, but if you were to go back into that time, long-distance miracles aren't really something that happens a whole lot. You don't really have a lot of records of them in the first century, Old Testament times. It's a pretty unusual thing. You see, the father seems to think if this healing is going to happen, Jesus needs to be there with the child. He says, look, come on down and heal my son, if you would. And and then when Jesus gives him this, this um, reply, he says, come down before my child dies. Please, let's, let's walk down this hill. Let's get back to Capernaum. We don't have time. Je- the father's not really interested in the theological discussion Jesus starts here, right? Jesus wants to start talking about science and true faith. And the father's like, look, my kid doesn't have that much time. Come down with me. And then Jesus, in compassion, goes, go home. Your son's healed. Perhaps, again, he does this long distance because he doesn't want the crowds to follow him down to Capernaum. And he recognizes this with just this word, the crowds are probably going to dissipate as the father heads back to his home. But we're told the father believes. He believes Jesus' words, and he heads back expectant, ready to receive the news that his servants come, meeting him halfway, saying he has been healed. His son is okay. And they put their heads together and they figure out what was happening. And they, they figure out that he got better at the exact same hour that Jesus proclaimed this truth. Jesus, in a sense, speaks into reality this healing. He brings back through his words this little boy on the brink of death. And we're told that the whole household then believes in Jesus. At one and the same time, Jesus heals more than one thing. He not only heals the body of the Son, he also heals the Father's heart. He also brings faith to this entire household. This miracle 
works on, on many levels. Now, when we ask, what's going on here with this story? At face value, this is a story about Jesus' compassion for a little boy. This is a story of humanity. This is a story of someone unlikely receiving the aid from Jesus. Karl Barth, a theologian, once famously quipped something to the effect of Christians need to read their Bibles with the Bible in one hand and their newspaper in the other. And they should interpret their newspaper. They should read it through the lens of their Bible. Karl Barth lived through a time when the Nazi regime came to power and started committing heinous acts on the Jewish people. And he was very concerned that if we just read the Bible, but we don't keep our eyes out to the side to see what's happening in our world, then we run the risk of having this private little faith that's nice for us, but doesn't help anybody else. It never speaks truth to power. It never really affects the reality of what's happening in real people's lives day in and day out at small levels and at national levels. And as I, I was holding for this week, I was reading this story. You have a child suffering. You have a parent panicking. You have Jesus bringing healing and life. And on Wednesday, in Parkland, Florida, a child, 19 years old, had had a tough life. brought a semi-automatic weapon into a high school and, and, and gunned down, killed, murdered 17 human beings. This is a tragic event in and of itself. It's even more tragic when you put it in context, which is that this seems to be a thing that we do now. In the history books, when we look back at this period, it will be defined by a nation that for whatever reason had to go through this period of time where kids had the ability and felt the need to go kill each other at school. And you have children suffering, you have parents panicking, and you have a question about what's Jesus going to do about this. I suggest that you and I, as individuals, our, our elected leaders as a nation, that we should respond to this tragedy and a series of tragedies with the same urgency that the Father exhibits here. That in our prayers, the way we're praying about this, in our, our thoughts and speech, the way we're talking about this, in our actions, the things we do about this, that it might have this type of urgency. And that it might take this form. It seems to be the pattern here that if you take Jesus at his word, before there are any results, before there is any kind of pragmatic proof, if you just take him at his word, as you walk down that path, you'll arrive at the miracle waiting for you. And the sense that I get is that we are in a in a state of kind of paralysis about the fact that these children in elementary schools and middle schools and high schools and universities keep having to undergo these, these 
acts of, of, of violence, terror, and horror. And I would, would propose, I would wonder out loud with you all, that the answer might be found in taking Jesus at his word. What does Jesus tell us about the type of life that leads to peace? What does Jesus tell us about the way we should treat other people? What does Jesus tell us about the way the church should lead the way in showing the world what God's kingdom on earth looks like? And instead of paralysis, instead of needing proof, instead of wanting evidence-based studies, let me tell you, there's not a whole lot of studies out there that will, will show you that if you get crucified, you'll get resurrected. If you wait for the logic to come in on that one, you're just never going to obey. Jesus, pick up your cross. Lose your life. That's when you'll find your life. I suggest we need to take Jesus at his word when he tells us what brings life, what we need to sacrifice, what we need to focus on. Are there easy answers? No. Do I have the answers? Definitely not. But do I feel an urgency? Yeah. What is the sign pointing us to? I think what John is primarily intending us to see here is something that's true about the identity of Jesus. I think John's trying to get us to see that Jesus himself is God's word, which has been sent to creation to bring the life of God, eternal life for resurrection life. This phrase is repeated in the story, your son will live. In the Greek, it's actually repeated three times, though our ESV Bibles change it the second time to your son is recovering. Same phrase, though, your son is alive and well. It's the gist of this, this Greek construction. Three times, that's John's way of underlining it for you or highlighting it. He repeats it over and over and over again. And in, in John's gospel, he loves to do these kind of play on words, these double entendres. He loves to um, kind of give you two meanings at once. The word life for John is often much more than just physical life. It's eternal life, the life of God. And I think what he wants us to see here is that life comes to this family in two ways. The little boy receives his life back from the doorstep of death, but the little boy also receives life because of the faith that this family now has in the person of Jesus. The father receives his son's life back, but the father also receives life in the faith that he now has in the person of Jesus. In Psalm 107, Psalm 107, verse 20, the psalmist is, is meditating on the Israelites' experience in the wilderness as they wander. And, and he says in verse 20 that God sent his word out and it brought healing and delivered them from destruction. There's this picture in Psalm 107 of God's word as this active agent that goes out and accomplishes things. Elsewhere in the scriptures, you'll see things like this. The word of God goes out with power and accomplishes that which it sets out to do. You might remember John begins his gospel by labeling Jesus as the logos of God, the word of God. I think what John is trying to get us to see is that just as Jesus speaks and with his words brings healing, so he himself is the word of God spoken into our creation to bring healing. 
Jesus is God's word sent to deliver us, to heal us, to save us from destruction. Jesus is the word of God sent into a sin-sick world to bring healing to creation. Into our world of death, God speaks his word of life. And John wants us to see that life, true life, is found in the Son. It's found through this person, Jesus of Nazareth. And in particular, it's found, as he's told us in John 20, it's found in having a faith in this Son. It's found in this trusting obedience to this Son. You have the, the royal official's faith here as a unique example of what it might mean to believe and to follow in Jesus. You have almost a progression of faith from sign faith, when the man comes to Jesus hoping for a miracle, to word faith, when he leaves trusting that Jesus' words will be enough to accomplish his healing, to this kind of absolute or personal faith at the end. You notice at the end of the story, him and his whole household believed, but they're not believing in a miracle happening. They're not believing in Jesus' words coming true. They're just believing. And this is much more powerful. This is much more purposeful than a signs faith or a words faith. This is the type of faith that will see them through all of life's troubles. Because this kid will get sick again. As we reminded ourselves on Ash Wednesday, this child will die. As will we all as mortals. The faith that we have in Jesus, while it does include healing and physical healing, is much deeper and more sustaining than that. It's a faith that in Jesus, even death itself will be defeated. We've received life, life eternal, this, this resurrection life. And just like this royal official, I think you and I, in times of crisis, in times of need, in times of confusion, we need to approach Jesus with urgency. We need to, we need to bring our prayers to him with some angst. We need to not just try once. Jesus tells a parable where he says, pray and pray often. Keep throwing rocks at the doors of heaven. We need to be like this royal official who keeps begging, my son, just come down and heal him. And then when Jesus gives us his word, when he tells us what to do, we have to be able to do it. To obey in faith and trust without perhaps proof that that faith will come through for us. It seems like John is telling us that the miracle, the healing, is waiting for us after we obey Jesus. We take him at his word. We start walking down that path. And the end of that path we find his word heals. And his word saves us from destruction. Life, full life, seems to be mediated through this trusting obedience of Jesus. And so this morning, in whatever crisis we might find ourselves in, in whatever situation we might most relate to in this story, 
character we might most identify with. We're invited to, to commit ourselves to faith and obedience and God's gift to us, his word sent into creation to provide life. Like the woman in Samaria, we often go lots of places for life and find them empty over and over and over again. We tap this well, and we tap that well, we tap this well, and none of them satisfy. And Jesus says, I am where life is. Don't focus too much on the signs, because what will happen is the bread of life will turn into just free lunch if you focus on the signs. The free lunch is great, but what's more important and greater than that is the actual bread himself, the one who will always sustain, the one who will always satisfy. We see here as well in John a picture of faith's maturity and growth. Faith is a dynamic thing. It's not a static thing that stays the same. There's a beginning to faith and a middle to faith and a maturity to faith. Faith is something that changes. Faith is something that we grow into. And so we're invited, like this royal official, to put all of our cards on the table, to trust that in Jesus and in obeying him that we might find life, not only life now, but life eternal. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for your word sent into our world that we might hear your message, we might know what you are like. Father, I pray that you would give us the faith of this official. You would give us the healing that this child receives. You would give us the life of faith this household inherits because of Jesus' work. I pray that no matter what crises we might encounter, no matter the fever or the sickness or the tragedy, that we would know for sure where life is found, who life is found in, and that we would go back again and again and again to your Son, that we might find meaning and purpose through Him and the Spirit. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that all God's people prayed, saying, Amen.